Well, it's uh, a great joy to be here and uh, a great privilege to open up this passage. It is a weighty passage, so let me pray for us before I get started. Heavenly Father, this passage is all about preparation. Would you prepare our hearts, Father, as we, we open this scripture? And Lord, as we consider this topic, impact each one of us, Father, for your glory. Amen. Well, have you ever been, have you ever prepared for an important event, one that would shape the future? Maybe a wedding, uh, birth of a child. And because it was so important, you gave all your attention to preparing for it. But sometimes in preparing for these things, people around you don't always understand their significance, do they? Maybe your closest friends, maybe a spouse, maybe your work colleagues. They're just not quite on board with that with that you're preparing for. Now, I know that these are petty examples in comparison to what Jesus is preparing for in this passage of Scripture, but I still wonder if that's how Jesus felt. Because in this Scripture, Jesus is intimately aware of the events that are about to take place. His betrayal, his trial, his beatings, his crucifixion. This is why the Son of God entered the world but this very moment, but despite its imminence and despite its importance, it seems to me that even by this late stage of Jesus' ministry, his disciples are still not quite prepared for Jesus to die. Now, we, we could probably think that maybe we could excuse the disciples for this. I mean, in fact, uh, but in fact, Jesus has already been preparing them all the way along. For example, in, in Matthew chapter 16, and verse 21, the scriptures say this. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the experts of the law and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so Jesus had told them explicitly what he was going to Jerusalem for. And if you look in verse 2, he reminds them again, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. But despite these warnings, even as they're on the outskirts of Jerusalem in Bethany, I still don't think the disciples appear to have grasped the significance of the coming days. And so everything in this passage, I think, is about preparing the disciples for his sacrifice. But let's come back to the disciples in a moment. Because whilst those closest to Jesus still had their heads in the sand, there are those in our passage who are getting prepared. Some are getting ready for Jesus to die. And you might note who they are in verse 3. They're his enemies. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so here's these higher up in Jerusalem and they're having their own gathering. They're cooking up this plot to capture Jesus in secret because they're afraid of the people. If they come for Jesus in public, they might turn on him. But how often is it the enemies of God are more prepared, more practiced for spiritual warfare than the people of God? Psalm 2 describes it like this. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against their Lord and against his anointed. The enemies of God, see, they get together, they conspire and they get on the same page with each other against the Son of Man, against his church, against his people. And their motives are all fueled by that evil one, Satan, who we looked at last week. But what are the people of God so often doing at these times? Well, if we were to read on in verse 40, they're sleeping, sleeping while their enemies get prepared. 
So it begs the question, do we meet together? Do we conspire together for God's glory? Are we getting on the same page as Jesus, figuring out how to live and to love him in our day? Because the enemies of God are still plotting. Nothing has changed. As Peter reminds us in his letter, be alert, be sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But in God's own sovereign design, Jesus is about to be given over to this evil plot. But coming back to his disciples, how do we know they're not ready? Well, I think there are clues for us in this gathering at Simon's house. You notice a woman comes to Jesus with an alabaster jar of expensive perfumed oil and he pours it, she pours it on his head. Now, this is an act of significant worship. I mean, to understand it, first we have to realise that this kind of oil, this kind of perfume is extremely expensive. A gift like this could have costed upwards of a year's labour, a year's wages for an average blue-collar worker in Jesus' day. It's a very expensive item. And this kind of jar, it was, it was sealed until its day of use. When you cracked it open, you broke the, the top off of the bottle. And it was when it was time to use that oil for something or someone significant, which explains why the disciples get upset and they begin criticising this poor woman. Why this waste, they say? It could have been sold for much money and it could have been given to the poor. And they were right. But why were the, the disciples so concerned about giving to the poor? And I think the answer to that question is that they learned it from Jesus himself. I mean, caring for the poor, setting aside wealth for the benefit of the less fortunate, if you read the scriptures, is a constant emphasis in Jesus' teaching. And so this criticism of the disciples, I think, reflects that something that they've learned from Jesus. In fact, this emphasis that they had about caring for the poor remains with the disciples long after Jesus' ascension. The Apostle Paul recalls that when he met some of these same disciples in Jerusalem, they urged him to remember the poor. So this was a focus in Jesus' teaching, which begs the question why many Christians in our day seem to have lost their sense of responsibility to care for the poor as part of Christian mission. Now I hear you thinking, doesn't Jesus rebuke them? Yes, he does. But look at the way Jesus interpretates his anointing for them in verse 10. Why do you trouble this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Do you see where Jesus puts the emphasis? Now, I don't think that this woman thought that when she was anointing Jesus, she was preparing him for burial, because I don't think you prepare bodies for burial when they're still alive. Nevertheless, Jesus turns her act of worship and interprets it for his disciples as a sign as a sign of his imminent death, as if to say to them, brothers, why are you focused on starting a ministry to the poor now? Don't you understand that the point of my death has arrived? And so the disciples were focused on a good thing, but at the wrong time. The time for Jesus' ministry was not to focus on the poor. It was, the, to, it was to die. The Father had sent him to do just this. So Jesus tells them, you won't always have me. So Jesus turns this whole anointing about his death, I think, to get them ready. And at the heart of the gospel message is the truth of the death of the uh, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and it's to be proclaimed in the whole world, which is why in verse 13, 
Jesus says that this woman will be immortalized in history because it's recorded in the scriptures and it's coming true right now as we read this passage and read what this woman's done. The prediction of Jesus is coming true. Now in verse 17, finally the disciples are wanting to prepare. Prepare for the feast of unleavened bread. The time when the people of Israel sacrificed thousands upon thousands of lambs and goats. And they would eat the meal to commemorate when their disciples were delivered from Egypt, way back when God struck down the firstborn sons of Pharaoh. God killed the sons of Egypt. But, in, but his judgment passed over the sons of Israel on account of the blood of a lamb, which they painted on the doorposts of their houses. Now notice, notice once again how Jesus prepares his disciples in verse 18. He says to them, go into a certain, go into a city, into the city, and to a certain man, and tell him the teacher says, my time is at hand, or my time is near. I will observe the Passover with my disciples at your house. Now who is this man? Matthew doesn't tell us. Was this prearranged? We don't know. But what is important is the way Jesus tells him to go and prepare for it. He tells them exactly what to say. And what they're to say is odd. I mean, he, he doesn't tell them to say, the time of the feast is at hand, I'll observe the Passover. That would be logical. But instead he says, my time is near. Jesus makes them deliver a message that should make them realise that it is time for Jesus to die. And the reason to prepare for the meal is not the imminence of the annual festival, but the need to commemorate his imminent death. So on this very evening, when everything's ready to eat, Jesus takes his place uh, at the table with the twelve. And it's in this intimate setting, lounging at the table, that Jesus prepares his disciples for the harsh reality of his betrayal. Now in the first century, uh, people didn't eat meals sitting at chairs and tables. They lay on couches um, close to the floor on a low table, uh, you know, around, around the, uh, you know, sharing this meal together. So I want you to use your imagination for a moment. Close your eyes if it helps, but don't fall asleep. Pull up a bed at the table next to Jesus and imagine you're one of his disciples. You've given up years of your life, your regular job, your income, your home, your family, to travel and learn from Jesus. You were there when he fed 5,000 people with a basket of bread and fish. You were there, terrified, when you thought you were going to drown in a storm until Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. You slept under the stars with him night after night with rocks for pillows. You were in on those inner circle conversations, you know, the ones where Jesus uh, interpreted the hidden meaning of his parables. Your whole life is orientated around him and his teaching, all your hopes, all your aspirations for the future of your people, and you've dipped your bread in the same bowl as Jesus many times. But this time you hear these shocking words of accusation, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. How heartbroken and distressed would you feel? Surely he doesn't doubt me, and so you begin reaffirming your love. Surely not I, Lord, surely not I. But there is one at the table with Jesus, and he is saying the same thing as everything else. Surely not me. But despite this confession of loyalty, this one consorts with enemies to betray him. Why? Now, maybe it's just literary variety. 
Or maybe Matthew gives us a tiny hint of the problem. Because in verse 22, Matthew records that all the disciples called Jesus Lord. But when he records the words of Judas Iscariot in verse 25, he says, surely not I, Rabbi, which means teacher. Now, Jesus was both of these Lord and teacher. So maybe Matthew's just using symptoms. Or maybe this is an allusion to what's going on with Judas. You see, the lips of this betrayer are saying the same thing as every other disciple's, but his heart is not the same. He's become disillusioned with Jesus. For his fellow disciples, Jesus was Lord and Master, whom they loved. But for Judas, Jesus had remained a mere teacher and one whom he was becoming more disappointed with every day. This so-called Messiah spoke of dying and a torturous death at that, a Roman cross, the ultimate act of shame. Are you kidding me? There was no path to riches following this Jesus, no career advancement on the horizon for Judas, not on this path. And so in an act of betrayal, Judas looks to cut his losses. And so he goes to the chief priest. What will you give me, he says, to betray him into your hands? And they lay out for Judas 30 pieces of silver, the cost of a slave prescribed in Exodus 21 when they were accidentally killed, as if to say, here, you take him, he's dead to me, just give me the price of a useless dead servant. Is it any wonder that the scriptures pronounce a curse on Judas? Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had never been born. God has reserved the strictest punishment for him. Now, despite the shock of of this betrayal, the meal continues. Because Jesus is not yet finished preparing his disciples. Now, there was an established custom in Jesus' time for proceeding with a Passover meal, a particular way in which the meal progresses. But Jesus veers off script. And you know what it's like when church gatherings, when you change the liturgy unexpectedly? It's very noticeable. That's usually when the tension in the room goes sky high. What's this new stuff? That's not how to do things. But it doesn't bother Jesus. In verse 26, Jesus changes things up. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks and gave, he gave it to them and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So unsuspectingly, Jesus restructures the meal to teach them the meaning of his death, not the meaning of the Passover. Oh, they were prepared for the Passover, but they were not prepared for the significance of the sacrifice of Christ. And so Jesus serves them up a spiritual lesson, not about their identity as the sons of Israel, but rather their position in him as benefactors of his sacrifice. And this is why Christians no longer celebrate the Passover, because the new sacrifice has been made. Not like the sacrifices in the Old Testament that spilt the blood of lambs. Here is the blood of Jesus, the the beloved Son of God, about to be poured out for them. And this meal, these disciples eat the body of Christ and they drink the, the blood of Christ. Symbolically, we're not Roman Catholics. This meal was not the sacrifice of Jesus, nor a prescription to keep on sacrificing. That would be idolatry. 
Oh, the wicked snatch all poor souls from false religion if they would just read this passage of scripture and realize that Jesus is giving them this meal to teach them the significance of his death. Notice that all of them ate from the same bread. They all drink from the same cup. They share in Jesus' body and blood their one. As if to say, the benefits of this new covenant apply to all and one the same. The members of this new covenant all have forgiveness. And notice that they took both elements representing the new covenant, the bread and the wine, internal to themselves. You see, in the Passover, the blood of the lamb was painted on the doorpost outside. Moses, in Exodus, after pouring out the blood of the animal, the blood of the covenant, he sprinkles it on the people. He splatters it on the outside of their clothes. But in the new covenant, these disciples are drinking the wine. I think as if to say that this new covenant is going to do something different on the inside. So after sharing this bread and the wine, Jesus also gives them a promise. Not a promise like the old covenant, a land in Palestine that, would give, that they would end up defiling and they would be thrown out of. But the promise of sharing the fruit of the vine again with Jesus in a kingdom that's prepared for them by God. And Jesus will deny himself this cup until that day, as if to say that his joy and his celebration won't be complete until they are with him in that kingdom. Now, rather than having me continue to explain this imagery, it's worth turning to Hebrews 10, because Hebrews 10 is one of those passages that I think gives us the theology behind uh, this supper, and it's good for us to meditate on. So if you've got a Bible, Hebrews 10 is on page 1006. Now, there's a lot of scripture here in Hebrews 10, so it's probably good. Uh, go home and read it. Meditate on the Lord's Supper. Read Hebrews 10 and understand what's going on. But let's read a little bit of it now just to get the sense. So page 1006, Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me in the scroll written of me in the scroll of your book. And skip down to verse ten, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put the law in their hearts and I'll write, their, I'll write them on their minds. See, this covenant makes one new on the inside by the power of his spirit. And the result, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Can you see the significance of the new covenant meal? Jesus revamps it because God has revamped his covenant with his people. And it's by the death of Jesus. 
Because where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. With, with Jesus' death, the sacrifices end because there's full and complete forgiveness. Now, these things are weighty. This is the essence of our faith. But here's my challenge for us today. Has your heart been prepared by the Scriptures to comprehend the significance of Jesus' sacrifice? And I say that because sometimes there are people who attend church gatherings who are a bit more like those priests in Israel in Jesus' day, who year after year go about their religion, sacrificing again and again their Passover lambs because they've entirely missed the significance of Jesus' one-for-all sacrifice. And because of that, you're continuously reminded and confronted by the guilt of your sin. But instead of embracing his sacrifice, you feel your need, your need to go and get a bit of religion splashed on the outside, maybe paint some of it on the doorposts of your life. But because it doesn't quell the fears inside, you come back for next week's sacrifice and you want to be splashed a bit more. And, we, and perhaps if we just keep painting the outside doorposts of your life, it will all be okay. And God will pass me over, but he won't. Because you will have rejected the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, which sets you free from having to perform for him. You don't have to jump through the sacrificial hoops anymore. They can't wash away your sins. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the meaning of the meal. Jesus' death sets you free to love him because he remembers your sin no more. But I know that sometimes there are those who also attend church gatherings and they're a little bit more like Judas. They recline at the same table as disciples and they say the same words, but in their hearts, Jesus is not Lord. He's just another teacher, just another kind of ancient Jordan Peterson, maybe a Middle Eastern life coach. But after that understanding of Jesus doesn't pan out, you will turn your back on him because you're still in love with your sin. And you'll go to the world and you'll ask of it, what will you give me? And the world will measure you out, some cheap substitute, just like it did for Judas. But it won't last. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Matthew chapter 16. See, that's the path to judgment, the path that Judas took. And if that were you, I plead with you today, take this new covenant into your heart by faith. Recline at Jesus' table proper. Stop eating and drinking in deception. You know you'll belong at the table when what you want most of all is forgiveness and a relationship with him. But most of all, I pray and hope today that Jesus' preparations in this text resonates with you strong assurance because in his sacrifice you see a sure salvation. Rejoice in that, because that's what I think God intends by recording these things for us. And as we celebrate yet again the Lord's Supper tonight, eat and drink assurance into your heart of what Jesus has done. Remember, this, this is not the true meal. This is hope. This is promise because of what Jesus has done. And remember, the banquet of our Lord Jesus will never be full until you are there. I mean, who can comprehend these things? That God has a couch with Jesus, waiting for you and waiting for me. That's what this is. Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who died 
so long ago to set us free uh, from having to perform for you, from having to have sacrifices. You have fully and completely taken away our sins because of the blood of the Lamb, the true Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Father, so often we uh, live life as if that were not true. Uh, help us, Father, to take full assurance, Lord, in the, in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, and, and give our hearts all that they, it needs to, uh, to have, that, have the faith that uh, we can live fully forgiven and loved by you uh, today. In Jesus' name, amen.